we're in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, uh, and this is verses 2 through 7. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Dave. Let's pray over this this, uh, sermon here. Father, thank you so much for your word, for your faithfulness to us, for the saints that are gathered to hear this morning. And so, Father, we, we pray that your word would penetrate deeply to our hearts that it would um, remind us of who you are, and that it would remind us of who we are, and it would remind us of who we are in you. Lord, I pray for my own heart, my own mouth, my own mind, that I would present your word as you intend, that I would not add to or take away from it, but I would speak as, as you have spoken, Lord God. And we thank you for this. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Jason mentioned... Today is Palm Sunday, and so I hope you're all waving your palm branches out there. Um, And uh, I am very grateful, as I've said the last couple of weeks, for the technology that we have that allows us to meet together like this. Uh, This is the first time I can honestly say in 48 years that I have celebrated Palm Sunday without being gathered with the body of Christ in person. Um, And since we don't have the benefit of each other's comforting presence, it makes it even more important to me, and I hope to you as well, for us to remember what Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem really means. That's absolutely vital for us. And and I, I pray that, that we would draw encouragement from this story and, and what it means, and that, and that especially in the uncertain days in which we find ourselves. So as, as Jason said, in preparation for the Passover, on the day after the Sabbath, the Bible says that Jesus was staying in Bethany, which is a village on the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. And uh, he journeyed toward Jerusalem, and, and when, as they were journeying toward Jerusalem with the disciples, they paused at another village called Beth, Bethphage. And this is where Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him with some very, very specific instructions. Again, that Jason told you about. Matthew 21, verse 2 uh, says this. It says, Go into the village in front of you, 
And immediately you will find a donkey tied and, her, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Only Matthew mentions two animals in his account, a mother and its colt, a mother donkey and, and its little colt. Jesus rode the colt. The colt was obviously old enough to support a full-grown man. Um, but Mark says that this colt had never been ridden before. And some people want to know, well, what, what's the purpose for the other animal, the other, the mother? And um, that, that was probably, most, most people believe that that was, that mother's presence was to keep the, the colt calm in the crowd that they were about to meet in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to, uh, to notice more importantly the authority of Jesus. Jesus sends the disciples with this instruction, and he says, the Lord needs them. When, when they're asked, what, you know, what are you doing? Why are you taking our animals? That their, their response is to be, the Lord needs them. Can you imagine that? Now, if you have a Corvette, can you imagine that tonight I go and I'm trying to get in the car and you come out with your shotgun and you say, what are you doing? I say, hey, it's okay, the Lord needs your car. It's a, it sounds silly, but that's about what was happening here in, in their mind. But, but with Jesus... It's different. When Jesus gives the order, it's different. Psalm 24 says this. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And, and, and what that means is that everything, everything in this planet, correction, everything in this universe belongs to Jesus Christ and has to be surrendered for his purposes. Everything that happens from here on out on Palm Sunday, is, is literally just jam-packed with prophetic fulfillment. In fact, Matthew and John reference Zephaniah, or I'm sorry, Zechariah. See, I should have done those Bible books like the kids, but they reference Zechariah 9.9, and it says this. This is what it says in Zechariah 9.9. This is what Matthew and John reference in their accounts. They say It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. These verses, the verses following this passage in Zechariah, are absolutely filled. You ought to look at them. Zechariah chapter 9. They're filled with implications of Christ's death and his resurrection. And, and it speaks of him making peace, which is what the gospel tells us that God, that Jesus did through, through the, the cross and the empty tomb. It speaks of him making peace while also bringing perfect justice. And it includes this stunning reference to Jesus' cross. This is Zechariah 9.11. It says... As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This passage, this, this idea of the blood of a covenant and setting prisoners free, it describes the coming messianic king as powerful. He's bringing justice. He's bringing peace. But, but he's not just powerful. He's also humble. He's riding in on a donkey. Now on the surface, this doesn't make hardly any sense at all. Think about it. Kings, any king you've ever seen depicted is always riding a, a, a stamping, snorting stallion where they're being pulled along in a regal 
gilded chariot. That's what kings do. Kings aren't generally regarded as humble. They're, they're revered and they're feared, but they're not called humble. But see, Christ comes riding into Jerusalem on a little donkey, and he's declaring by that act with scriptural authority that he is the long-awaited messianic king. The scripture had said, behold, your king comes riding on a donkey. He is both, Jesus is both powerful, he is sovereign, he's, he's omnipotent, but he's also humble. He, he had said one time that foxes have dens and birds have nests, but he said the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has nowhere to lay his head. And yet this homeless Savior commandeers at his very word a couple of donkeys that do not belong to him. Because, he's, because of his authority, because of his power. In just five short days, he's going to humble himself to die on a cross. But he enters the great city with shouts of praise, with people submissively spreading their cloaks in front of his animal, and waving palm branches, shouting praise. The one who would be willingly put to death by the chief priest will next day, the very next day, drive people out of the temple with a whip. The one who people call the son of David, the heir to Jerusalem's throne, will in just a few short days be crowned with only thorns. Jesus is a paradox. He's in charge. He stumps religious honchos over and over again. They question him, and what he does he do in return? He questions them and refuses to answer their questions. And yet... By these same people, he will be led like a sheep to the slaughter. How can Jesus be both sovereign king and sacrificial lamb? There's a great passage. It's almost a hymn in Philippians chapter 2 that describes Jesus' humility. It says that, that he became obedient and, and, and obedient unto death and even death on a cross. And, and Christ's willingness to die on that cross... Because of his obedience, it says, therefore, because of his humility, therefore, God has highly exalted him. He is exalted by his willingness to submit to God, to obey God. His crown comes because of his obedience. In praying the night before Jesus was crucified, his great high priestly prayer in John 17, he says to the Father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. See, that's the obedient humility. But listen to what he says next. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's the sovereignty. That's the power. Isaiah 9, if you would open your Bibles back up to Isaiah 9, and just kind of keep your finger in there. I'm going to be referring it uh, back to it through the remainder of this, uh, this uh, message to you. And so if you look back at Isaiah 9, and you understand its full context, it explains all of this beautifully, this, this message I'm trying to tell you about this humble, reigning king. It explains it beautifully. And it looks forward to the Messiah's reign and the deliverance that he's going to bring. Verse 2 says this. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, 
On them a light has shone. Jesus said in John 8, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. The people of God that, that this message in Isaiah came to, that the people of God would be soon punished for their idolatry and they would be reduced to a mere remnant of their former strength. But when Messiah comes, this is what they're going to say to him. You have multiplied the nation, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. And this promise, it points to the fulfillment of a promise of God. The promise that God made that through Abraham's seed, hundreds of years before, that God made this promise to Abraham's seed, or that through Abraham's seed, who is Jesus, that all the nations of the world would be blessed. See, through Jesus, the people of God, and if you are not a natural born ethnic Jew, you should be really happy about this. Through Jesus, the people of God wouldn't be limited to only Jews, but it would include Gentiles from every nation who are called by God to believe in his son. And the result of this, the result of this calling would be great joy for those who were once excluded but are now included in God's people. And Isaiah gets specific in this prophecy to illustrate this. The last part of verse 3 says, They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when, the, when they divide the spoil. He says that, that what is coming is going to be like harvest time. Think about harvest time. All of the labor that is exerted to produce a crop is done. And the farmer... And his family can now happily enjoy the fruit of all that hard work. He says it's like the end of a war when soldiers can finally lay down their weapons, lay down their arms, and divide the spoils that they have taken from their vanquished enemies. See, the gospel proclaims just that. It's harvest time. It's the end of war. The gospel proclaims that everything that God demanded... Everything, every requirement of God has been satisfied by the Messiah's coming. The righteousness that is required by every point of the law has been perfectly fulfilled by Jesus. The punishment for all of our sins, all of them, have been, has been absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross. So what, what Isaiah is saying and what the gospel says is this isn't time to work. It's time to rest. It's time to rejoice in Jesus. None of your hard work is going to save you. Nothing that you can do, nothing you can produce is going to rescue your soul. Only trusting in Jesus. Rest in Him. Rejoice in Him. Isaiah describes the victory won for us in greater detail in verses 4 and 5. It says, For the yoke of His burden and the staff of for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every, uh, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah looks back to the victory that God won through victory, for, through Gideon rather, in Judges 6 and 7. When, when we're done here today, you should read that story in, in uh, Judges 6 and 7. It's incredible. And that's where he gets this reference to the day of Midian. Midian had come against 
uh, uh, the people of God and Gideon uh, led this battle through God's calling. And the battle happened in an incredibly unlikely way. And it was through absolutely impossible odds that victory was obtained. And, and what I want to ask you this morning, is there a better way to describe the way the cross has brought us victory? Was there anything less likely? Was there anything more impossible than that a cross should bring us victory? How does the public execution of a man, an innocent man, result in the deliverance of all of us? The same question was answered by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's explaining why people don't get the gospel, why they can't grasp it with their natural understanding. It says, for Jews demand signs. And what he means by that is that the Jewish people always wanted a miracle. Do you see that in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels? They always wanted a miracle to verify that the Gospel was true. And he says the Greeks seek wisdom. The Greeks would listen to anything if it had an air of intellectualism, a kind of an academic understanding of life. And then he says, in contrast to the Jews seeking signs and the, and the Greeks seeking wisdom, he said, but we... Preach Christ crucified. And that's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, are you called this morning? Have you been called by Jesus to the gospel? Has the Holy Spirit drawn you into, into the, the, the saving, redeeming love of Christ? For those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. And Christ is the wisdom of God, he says. Isaiah paints a picture when he talks about what life is, going, is, is like and what it's going to be like. He paints a picture of burdensome yokes. You can just see them on people's shoulders. And abusive staffs and torturous rods that are using to, to beat the people of God. And he says that, that in this day when Messiah shows up, he, he says that all of these things will be broken by God's deliverance. Yokes, rods, staffs, they'll all be broken. And this speaks of the end of the power of sin, the power of death, the power of the devil. He says that the implements of our enemies' attacks, the actual instruments that they use to bring us pain, will be burned as fuel for the fire. Sickness, fear, depression, all of these things will hold no more lasting power over the redeemed of the Lord. And how can this be? And how shall it be? How will this come to pass? What could possibly be the instrument? What could possibly be the pathway for our freedom and our triumph? Well, it's found in verse 6. And it says this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, let's be honest. We don't usually dust that verse off until Christmas time. Some of you forgot it was in the Bible until you get the, the ornaments out that have it printed on there. We don't usually think about that time, at this time of year. But if you think that, that in the scripture, unto us a, a child is born, a son is given. If you think that the emphasis is just the child lying in a manger, you are missing the point. The emphasis of this passage is properly placed on the child's government. You see, that child lying in a manger is a king. But he's not like any king the world has ever seen before or ever has seen since. 
And no one else in all of the future will be like him. The last part of verse 6 says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor points to Jesus as the fountain, the source of all wisdom. All truth begins with Jesus. And without him, you cannot possibly know what is true about God, what is true about the world, what is true about yourself. Jesus is the source of truth. But he doesn't just sit in the lotus position dispensing fortune cookie advice like some guru. He is not just a counselor. He is the mighty God. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, completely sovereign, absolutely holy. And to be known as the everlasting father doesn't confuse the son with the, with the first person of the Trinity, the father. See, in those days, in, in days gone by, kings were often regarded as the father of the realm. What does a father do in a household? Well, the father protects, the father provides. And that's what Jesus does for his subjects, his sheep, if you will. That's what he does for them perfectly. Lastly. Christ shall be called the Prince of Peace. And this title describes the very essence of his power and his reign. He, Jesus, has brought us peace with God. Something we never could have had without him. None of us have ever worked out a truce with God. As sinners, we are absolutely the enemies of God. The Bible says incurring his wrath every single day. But what Christ has done is actually reconciling us to God. Ephesians actually says he is our peace. So we can't have peace without God. We can't have peace with God without him. But that's not all he's done. He's also brought us peace with ourselves. You know why? Because we're no longer under condemnation. And we have peace to be able to, uh, to walk in a world like we find ourselves in today that's full of trouble. And we walk in it unshaken because he commands even the winds and the seas. And all of these wonderful titles tell you everything you need to know about his reign. But there's more. You see, kings come and go, they live and they die. But the Bible says in verse 7, of the increase of his government... And of peace, listen to this, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, Christ's perfect reign and his peace will continue unbroken. It increases every time a sinner believes. And, and it grows and it grows every time someone comes to Christ. Until one day, as Revelation chapter 11 tells us, an angel will proclaim, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus is the king. And this is what the crowds in Jerusalem were shouting. They, but they didn't fully understand what they were seeing. And they didn't even understand what they were shouting as they cried out to him. See the word Hosanna that they shout in those passages. Hosanna. It means save us, O Lord. They were looking for a military leader who would run Rome right out of the Holy Land. But Jesus' eyes were on a much, much, much bigger prize. 
Jesus' eyes were on the souls of everyone the Father had given him, from every nation, every race, every tribe, every tongue, who lived in every time, in every place around the world. And when this crowd on Palm Sunday said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they thought because of some miracles that he had performed that had become famous, they thought that Jesus was at least God's representative, that he was acting on behalf of God. But what they did not understand was that Jesus was God himself who had accomplished salvation for them in ways that were absolutely inexplicable and all-encompassing. And this is the message, not just about one more Palm Sunday in the list. It's pointing us to the fact that we are just like the crowds in Jerusalem. All of us, at some point or another, are just like the crowds in Jerusalem. See, we often forget that Jesus is God, and that he's king, and that he's reigning now, even over coronavirus. And he's reigning over the economy. And he's reigning over your personal fears. And he's reigning over the government of the United States and every other government on the planet. And why do we forget? Because we're so entranced. We're so uh, just intrigued by everything we see around us. But see, what I want to remind you this morning is that Jesus Christ is not the humble sufferer, the the carpenter from Nazareth, riding quietly on a donkey anymore. Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ right now occupies a throne at the right hand of his Father. Believe, I'm calling you, believe by faith today that Jesus is reigning, and that he holds all of this garbage that we're facing day in and day out these these days. He holds all of that garbage in his hand. Every wave of the ocean only advances at his command, the scripture tells us. Viruses only act where he permits. His provision for his children is not limited by a paycheck that you may or may not get, or by a supply chain that may be broken. Job even proves, in the first couple of chapters of Job, he proves that the devil only acts under the strictest authority of God. And so my encouragement to you this morning is fear not. Be of good courage. Don't fear those, as Jesus said, or that meaning coronavirus. Don't fear those or that which can kill the body but reverently fear the one that can throw both the body and the soul into hell. Turn in full faith this morning. Turn your heart fully in faith towards your wonderful counselor with your fear, your anxiety, your worry. Turn to your mighty God with your worship, your adoration, your devotion. Turn to your everlasting Father with every single need for provision and all of the protection that you could possibly desire. And turn your hearts this morning to the Prince of Peace for your comfort and for your assurance in an uncertain time. Jesus Christ reigns. 
So if you would just extend your hands into a receiving position, and I'm just going to read uh, this benediction over you, and I hope you'll, you'll receive it by faith and take it uh, as encouragement uh, for the remainder of your day. The Bible says in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Abound in hope, Northridge Life Church. I love you, and we'll see you Friday night at 630.